Would you open God's precious holy word to Psalm 59? Stuart Briscoe, perhaps you've heard of him. He's a pastor, I guess, of another day. He still lives, born in 1930, but he's retired from pastoring and he writes articles and I think he has a podcast or a show on TV or something. I can't remember, but he wrote an article about this psalm. And he talked about the world in which he grew up and he called it the, he called it the Eisenhower era that uh, I would have been a small child during that time, but he would have been a teenager and in his early 20s. And he talks about what followed that immediately. And he spoke of how untamed the world seemed to be in the post-Eisenhower era. He spoke of the 60s. And he went through the list of people who were assassinated or there was an attempted assassination and they lived. Began with John Kennedy and then his brother, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King. Uh, On the list was Ronald Reagan and uh, George Wallace, um, John Lennon, and there were others I can't remember. And he spoke of the violence of the times and uh, there were riots in the streets and, and the world, the, the culture of the world, especially in the United States, was getting flipped upside down. This is what he described it. And he wrote this many years ago. <laughs> he, he really probably really has a good article to write today. But at the end of his article, he, it, was, it was an article introducing a message on Psalm 59. And he said, this is our psalm. The picture, the mindset, the picture that one would have then as he begins this study would be a picture of an unruly world. A world of uh, hatred and and murder, a world of, of lies and deceit, a world where a righteous person felt alone nearly and could only appeal to God for help. So like Stuart Briscoe wrote, I guess this is our psalm, I don't know, I I'll leave that for others to decide, but we're looking at Psalm 59, deliver and defend. David, the psalmist begins with a cry for deliverance and he begins to describe the crisis that exists for the conductor, Al-Tashchethetz, do not destroy a michtam of David, which is a contemplative, sobering psalm. When Saul sent and they guarded the house, to slay him. David was set in in circumstances that seemed to be for him wild and and untamed and people were lying about him and they they were trying to discover him and they were tricking him and doing all kinds of things. And so he had enemies. 
This is what, this was his prayer. In the time when Saul was trying to catch him and he had all these people after him and lying about him, disinformation and misinformation, and all this thing. And you know, okay. I watch different newscasts and things that uh, we hear a lot about, have heard a lot about over the, over the last few years. Another newscast is saying all of that is Russian disinformation. Well, as far as I know, this was the disinformation that these guys, you know, I don't know. I can only appeal to absolute truth. Well, this is the kind of world that David was living in. People were saying so many things and some people were taking it in and they were on the side of the information or disinformation that David was just a bad guy. He was mean and uh, he was underhanded. He was trying to knock off the, the, the anointed king of the Lord and all that kind of stuff. And then there were people on the other side said, no, that's not the right information. That's exactly opposite of what it is. This is the world about which David wrote. Save me from my enemies, Elohi. Oh, my God. Strengthen me against those who rise up against me. He was, you know, we talked about this, I think, when we were in 2 Samuel last time. It's, it's, he was practically always outnumbered in every situation he found himself in. The world was throwing itself against David. And it's easy to know why. Because David carried the promise of the Christ within him. He had enemies everywhere. And they wanted to beat him down emotionally, psychologically, physically, socially, culturally, every way that you can think of, they came in an attack. This was the well-orchestrated attack of the world, of course, led by Satan himself. And Satan had his sights on David during this time of, of King Saul's reign after David had been anointed and Saul was still the king. So they, they, were, they were the enemies of David all around. They're supposed to be on his side. But all kinds of things were being said and lies and deceit. All he can do is appeal to God. Strengthen me. They're trying to weaken him. Strengthen me against those who rise up against me. Save me from workers of iniquity, of, of trouble. Workers of iniquity, that word, the synonymous part could be trouble. Rescue me, deliver me from bloodthirsty men. Now that's a, that word, rescue, if you took that word and brought it through um, etymologically and philologically and linguistically, if you brought it through and let it make its way from old Hebrew to Koine Greek, it's, it's practically, would practically be the same word in the Greek that speaks of the rapture. Snatch me out of this trouble. Now, it's, 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 don't get me wrong, it's not a prophecy here, a hidden prophecy of the rapture, it's not that at all. 
But it is a word, you know, harpazo, the word in the Greek text, translated in King James, caught up. We are, it means snatched away or seized from impending danger. That's what the word means. And that becomes the doctrine of the rapture. Well, here for David, he is, he lives in his prayer. He sees himself as living in a world of trouble. That's too much for him. And he's asking God to snatch him away, to rescue him, to save him. Save me from workers of iniquity. Rescue me from bloodthirsty men. He goes then to describe what he's facing in the crisis. They're lurking for my soul. Now, uh, the, the soul, this is a, this is the emotional and rational seat of a man. The, the nafash, the, the, the ruach in the Hebrew would be his spirit. But this is his, this is the essence of his existence on earth. They're lurking. They lurk for my soul. So wherever he is, he can't say the right thing. He can't do the right thing. He can't go to the right place because they surround him and they'll find fault with him and they'll make accusations that are really accusations that could demand the death penalty. And he says, they're all around me. They're lurking everywhere. Strong men lodge against me, neither for my transgression nor for my sin, Yahweh. They're not doing it because I'm wrong or I'm guilty. They're not doing it because of my guilt. They're doing it because they are evil. Without iniquity, they run and prepare themselves. They have, there's, 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 let's see how that, it means that they, they're not restrained. They're unrestrained. Nothing troubles them. They're unrestrained in what they do. They run and prepare themselves. And then he makes his plea to Yahweh. Please open your eyes. Look to me and see what's going on. You see that kind of phraseology quite often in the prayers, the Psalms of David, when he is in such deep despair. He feels like, he feels like, I mean, of course, he also writes that the Lord never sleeps or slumbers. It has, doesn't have anything to do with that. But it is that God, the, 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 the timber of his prayer is such that God is distracted. <laughs> you can't distract God. But God is distracted and he's not looking. Hey, look over here at me. I'm in a mess. That's what he's saying. Look toward me and... See, of course, God always had his eye on David. So this leads David in his prayer to cry for judgment against his enemies. And you, Yahweh Elohim Tabo, and you, Lord God of armies or of hosts, God of Israel, arise to visit upon all nations. Now this sort of has a, this sort of has an eschatological theme to it. In other words, uh, 
the end of time kind of theme when, when at last all the nations are judged and all unrighteousness is put down and there is one, there is one kingdom of righteousness and all the other kingdoms as God places them are subservient to and worship that king and kingdom. This is, this is his cry. He says, arise to visit. Now this is to visit wrath upon all the nations. Be not gracious to any treacherous workers of iniquity forever. One can become philosophical, but you really don't have to become anything other than historical. If you're a Christian, if you're a student of the scriptures, just to read the history books and recognize the spirit of Antichrist that, that goes all the way back. I mean, we can predate Egypt. We can go to Hammurabi and, and to the earliest of known human history. And when you read the record of the ancient cultures and nations, you will see that for the most part, they are antichrist. They are pagan. They are, uh, they are pantheists at, at best. And they, they're not focused on the God of the scriptures. They're not focused on the God of creation. And they're not focused on even the earliest promise, the seed of woman. They don't follow that. They follow their own thing. And it, it really springs out from the Tower of Babel. The Bible says that, speaks of Nimrod, who's a type of the Antichrist. And he led the rebellion at Babel to keep all the people together. And he had a project where humankind could build their way to heaven. We don't need God. We just need ourselves and we stay together and we'll... We'll make our way to heaven ourselves. We don't need deity. We don't need, we will make to ourselves our own deities. So the, the plethora of gods came out from there, almost one or more for every language that it was scattered. And they spread upon and spread through, should I say, all the nations. Now, of course, the scriptures Give to us how God established his covenant in a special way all the way through. He, all, he, it comes to Noah. He has a, a covenant with Noah and then makes a promise to Shem, the Lord God of Shem, Yahweh Elohim. It's, uh, it, it, it separates Shem from the other two. So the direction of the scripture in its Hebraistic uh, language and flavor is that the favor of God now goes with Shem, the Semites, the Semitic people. And right after that is Heber. Heber, he's the fa father of the Hebrews. Abram was called a Hebrew. They were called Hebrews in Egypt even. Those who, those who were on the other side of the river, that's what the word means, Heber. So the Hebrews then carry the promise, but then it narrows down to 
Avram, Avram, Genesis 12, and he carries the covenant, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and all the way through, David carries uh, the covenant. These people are special. They've been separated. He gives them the law. We studied Leviticus. He said, you're different from the rest of the nations. You're not like the other nations. You're my people. I'm your God. Now, what you have everywhere else is the way of the world. And they don't care anything about God's heaven or God's salvation or God's word or anything. As a matter of fact, it was their Satan-inspired job and goal to destroy the people of God. All the way through the Old Testament, practically. You have the intertestament period and the Jews at that time, of course, when they came out of Babylon, they were known as Jews because they were only the tribe of Judah. There were none of the other tribes left. So the shortened term for that was Jews. And the Jews had tremendous struggle all the way through in the intertestament period. If you read the, the history books. They're still struggling under the yoke of Rome in the time of Christ, the four gospels, and all the way through really um, the New Testament. And the people of God have always been hated by the world. David, the progenitor of the Christ, is hated by the world. Visit your wrath upon all the nations. Don't be gracious to these treacherous workers of iniquity and judge them Forever, And of course, may I say, that's where the world is headed. We're probably not very far from it. The final time of judgment. When finally the nations are judged. And the concept of rebellious nations finally is destroyed. Um, only, only to emerge with none but the righteous in the millennial kingdom. There are no unsaved people in the millennial kingdom regardless of tribe or tongue or kindred or nation. So David's cry is that these, these treacherous, iniquitous people will be judged forever. They are antichrist. They hate God and the people of God. So this is his first refrain of crisis. They return in the evening they howl like a dog and encircle the city. They're intimidating. Um, they're wanting to tear the man of God to pieces. And in history, the people of God, behold, they spew forth with their mouth. They have swords in their lips for who hears. They think they can say whatever they want to say, sort cutting things that are not true because they think no one is listening. But David hears and David's God hears. So here is then his confession of faith. But you, Yahweh, will laugh at them, will scoff at them. Same thing is said in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage against God and his Christ, his anointed his Messiah is anointed. Then it says that God in heaven will laugh and will, will be in, in, in he, will, he will be in almost uncontrolled laughter 
at the nations who think they can stay the purpose of God in this world. We live in very troublesome times. It's only going to get worse. Nothing can compare to the trouble that the world will see in the time of the tribulation. And the Gentiles, the nations, will have formed themselves to the pinnacle of their power under the leadership of the beast, the Antichrist, and they will, unlike at any other time, certainly rage against God and his Christ. This will be the strongest, most complete effort of the nations to destroy Israel and to defy Christ that the world will have ever known. And of course it brings the judgment of God. It brings the judgment of God through the seals that are broken and the scroll of redemption that Christ himself holds and then the, the trumpets that are blown and the bowls of wrath that are poured out upon the world until, until finally the armies of the world gather thinking they can defeat Christ and he doesn't even fire a shot. He just speaks and they're defeated. Now, David has has some kind of early sensitivity about this because he says, Yahweh will scoff at them. You will mock all the nations. And one at a time, he does. If you go back in Isaiah, Ezekiel, you will see this list, this litany of prophecies against the nations of those days. And those nations in those days in some way came against Israel. And one by, it may have taken decades or scores of years, it may have taken a couple of centuries, but those nations fell. You don't see the same list of nations anymore because God put them down. He laughs at them. There's no telling how many more times the world map will change before the Christ comes in power and in glory. But all of these Gentile nations, none of them can last. They just can't keep going. Only Israel. Only Israel. So God laughs at them. He mocks them. Because of his strength, I hope for you. I wait for you is probably a, as good of a way to interpret it. For Elohim is my fortress, my stronghold, my defense. Elohim is my protector. And he says, God, the God of my mercy. You see the root here. Well, if you look at the transliteration, chazdo, chazdi. Chesed is a root in both of those words. Chesed is the word that describes the covenant love of God sometimes translated loving kindness or mercy. In its deepest and highest sense, it speaks of the covenant love of God, which carries with it the mercy of God, the loving kindness of God toward those because God himself has established a covenant. And the covenant that God has established 
depends on the power of God to fulfill the covenant. We're powerless. We can't do anything about the covenant. God chooses to establish a covenant with his people. So now David takes the place of someone who is covered by the covenant when he uses those words. Elei chazdo chazdi, chazdi. The God of my covenant love, the God of my mercy will come to meet me. Elohim, God, Elohim will let me see, will let me to see my desire on my enemies. God will make it. And his, what is his desire? He's already spoken his desire. Kill them all. That's kind of what he said. Destroy them. And the destruction of the unrighteous with regard to the nations is pending. It's coming. No doubt about it. It's coming. And David will see it. Elohim will let me see my desire on my enemies. Finally, all of the unrighteous are judged and cast into the lake of fire. So then comes his second cry for judgment. Do not kill them lest my people forget. Remove them from their possessions with your power and bring them down. Adonai, our shield. Bring them down. So this is the, this is the progression of nations through the ages until, of course, the final judgment. Jesus said, wars, rumors of wars, nation rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Until the fullness of the nations, of the Gentiles comes in. So this is, this is much earlier than when Christ said that. It was the same idea. David is saying, they'll be brought down one by one through the, through the centuries. There's no great nation that has ever existed and just stayed in its position of greatness. Never has been. Why? Because it says here, the power of Adonai will eventually bring them down. Why? Because it is not the millennial kingdom. They're not a theocracy. They're not theocracies. They're not the nations over which rules the son of David. Until the time comes when all of that's put down and in the millennial kingdom... Christ the King, enthroned in Jerusalem. The sin of their mouth is the word of their lips. They're liars. And they will be seized because of their haughtiness, because of the curse and the lies that they tell. Destroy them with wrath so that they will be no longer. Now that speaks of the end of time. In the, in, the, in the process of time, Adonai brings them down until at last in wrath they are no longer. And what happens? And they will know that Elohim rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth forever. Now you can study Daniel. You can, well, you can study any of the prophets um, you can study Isaiah in particular places. You can study the Revelation in certain places. Where's what you come up with? Finally, Jacob, people of God, 
The covenant went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, who is also named what? Israel. His name is Israel. Finally, when all of the nations have fallen and the Christ comes in power and in glory, the, the, the most favored nation then is Israel. And at last, they will live within the boundaries that God promised to Abraham, a space of land that they have never enjoyed completely. We are told in the Bible, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Jerusalem knows no peace until Christ is enthroned there. So here we go. Destroy them with wrath so that they will be no longer. They will know that Elohim rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth forever. In the millennial kingdom, the nations, the Gentiles, who are not Israel, but they are in the kingdom, will, will bring their honor. They will bring homage. They will bring honor and praise to Christ. Christ will be their teacher and teach them his word. And they have appointed and set times when they are to come and make their pilgrimage to the, to the land of Jacob, the land of Israel. But the greatest of all of those nations will be the nation of Israel will be Jacob. And it'll be what? Forever. Forever. So he repeats the refrain of crisis here. They will return in the evening, howl like dogs. They will encircle the city. They will roam about to eat if they are not satisfied so that they will lodge. Now, this keeps going and keeps going until finally Christ puts it all down. David has addressed both in this prayer, in this psalm. So he makes his final confession then here. And I will sing of your power. And I will sing praises of your kindness in the morning. For you were my stronghold and a refuge on a day that I was in straits, that I was in trouble. I had nowhere to go. My strength to you will I sing for Elohim is my stronghold. God of my mercy. God of my covenant love. And he ends his prayer. It follows the pattern like so many others. He's in he's, he's in great need. He feels helpless. But then he gets strengthened along the way while he's praying when he thinks of God and he takes his mind off of himself and everybody around him. He thinks of God. This strengthens him. And finally, he's worshiping God because of God's power, because of God's covenant love for his own. God is our stronghold. Nothing in the world is our stronghold. We're the people of God. We will always be hated some of us even killed because we are God's, but he is our refuge. He is our defense. All right, we'll stop there and let's pray we through tonight. Father God in heaven, Lord, we love you. We love you because you first loved us as the apostle taught. We thank you that you are ever present 
that you're always our helper and our defender and our friend, even in the worst of times. Strengthen us always with your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.